Does Trump have the big mo? And is the new Wall Street Journal poll on patriotism and religion a sign that all is lost? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, and the sage of authenticity woods. Jim Garrity, you are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Jim, we have Donald Trump back out on the trail, a big rally in Waco, Texas, very Trumpian Rally makes his entrance, uh, buzzing the crowd with his jet as a song from Top Gun plays. He has a January 6th choir there, some scenes from January 6th played on the big uh, video screens, a uh, Trump-like screed against DeSantis and hitting on his various grievances and most of it, not all of it. People didn't get into his mockery of DeSantis so much, but otherwise a, uh, a warm reception and you would have, uh, if you didn't know the date, you would have thought this was any time between um, you know, t- 2016 and 2021. No, no signs of uh, Trump erosion. What did you make of it? So you know the old anecdote about uh, Reagan running and his advisors tell him to tamp it down and Reagan goes out there and does his usual self and somebody says, oh my God, he's going to run as Reagan. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess maybe I've heard a version of that was Goldwater. Too, but the gist is like, Goldwater, oh, my God, yeah. oh my God, he's running as Goldwater, yeah. Uh, my God, speech. he's running as Donald Trump and he's running not away, for, you know, or making excuses for January 6th. He's running on pride for January 6th. January 6th was a good thing. The problem with January 6th is it didn't go far enough. The people who've been arrested are political prisoners, not lawbreakers who deserve to be sentenced to actual jail time for their actions. Um, I mean, for Republicans who want to win in 2024, this is about as bad as it can get. Um, this is the hallmark of a guy. Like, I know he talked about, oh, he wants to do flying cars and future cities and he's uh, you know unveiling all these you know anti-trans policy now Donald Trump has never been that interested in what government actually does Donald Trump's favorite topic is Donald Trump and you know when he runs the, his campaign theme will be primarily about Donald Trump I am your retribution right you have been wronged America because I have been wronged I should have won in 2020 and we're going to relitigate this all the way through election day November 2024. And I've been wrong before, but this is going to go terribly for Republicans. This is going to hurt them in the House. This is going to hurt them in the Senate. It's going to be a giant dead weight on Republicans because it just comes across as fundamentally unserious and detached from the actual problems facing the country. But that's that's who Donald Trump is. And I don't think you – know, I'm not in a panic about it because I think when you see the, you know, the alternatives to Trump and Trump up on a stage and DeSantis is talking about – or, you know – Tim Scott or any of the others are talking about inflation, are talking about high grocery bills, are talking about high gas bills, are talking about lack of enforcement at the border, and Trump keeps ranting about Venezuelan hackers, then I think this will go well for those other candidates. But I've been wrong before. So, Charlie, last two weeks, we've seen a shift in the conventional wisdom where there's some murmurings, oh, well, maybe DeSantis uh, you know, should be responding to Trump. Uh, he's losing a little bit of altitude in, in this poll here or there. And now you had a big story. I think it was NBC did the story talking to Trump uh, – sorry, DeSantis – Donors and they they all sound fairly freaked out. Plus, there's just these these signs of the con- continued animal vigor of Donald Trump, for better or worse. So you have a big downdraft in terms of feelings uh, about uh, DeSantis's strength. Where are you? I don't know where I am. I flit a little bit, as you know, between despair and hope. I spent the weekend feeling somewhat down about the prospects. And then I saw an Axios poll that said that DeSantis was doing pretty well in Iowa and New Hampshire, and I bounced back a little bit the other way. Since then, I have contrived what at least is an explanation, even if it's not the explanation. And that is that we are, I think, seeing a fairly normal development in the primary such as it is that doesn't tell us yet 
who is going to prevail. Donald Trump is, finally, actually running for president. If you look at the coverage of Trump's campaign prior to the last couple of weeks, it largely consisted of people noting that Donald Trump had announced that he was running for president and then done very little except step on his own feet. He made a low-key announcement. He then spoke to Nick Fuentes and Kanye West, and he put out his Trump cards. And all of a sudden, he's energetic. All of a sudden, he's taking shots at the other candidates. He's holding rallies. He's on the news again. This has coincided with the natural decline in excitement about Ron DeSantis's absolutely massive landslide win in Florida. Of course, in November, everyone was talking about DeSantis. Not only did he blow out his re-election rate, not only did he win the largest re-election landslide in the state's history for a Republican, but he was the one bright spot on a night that was disappointing for Republicans and that was disappointing for Republicans in some part because Donald Trump's choices for the Senate were disastrous. So DeSantis is doing what now? He's gone back to actually working and signing bills, announcing bills, selling bills while the legislature is in session. And that's opened up some opportunity for Trump to talk about other things. So I'm not quite sure where we are. I think it will be much clearer where we are once DeSantis has actually got in, which I think is inevitable. And there's been a couple of months of this from two declared candidates arguing with each other with equal vigor and equal attention. So, Noah, I, I think the uh, people are, are too down on DeSantis's chances at the moment. You look at his favorable, unfavorable ratings in the early states. I mean, they, they are off the charts match or exceed those of Donald Trump. That's a major asset, has $100 million in the bank and isn't running yet. Uh, on the other hand, it's just Trump. Uh, Trump is still Trump. The uh, A lot of Republicans, I wrote about this uh, over the weekend, a lot of Republicans look at him and the things that are so appalling to so many people and objectively appalling where he doesn't abide by any rules, will say anything, you know, anything about Alvin Bragg, anything about DeSantis. They see that as a strength and as willfulness, as MBD said in a piece of his his own, that is necessary for the moment, necessary to, to fight back with the requisite ferocity against the other side. And then you have DeSantis, who cracked a little bit in that interview with Piers Morgan and criticize Trump a little bit, but he's being very strategic and Trump is being extremely heedless. And there are a lot of Republicans who like that heedlessness. Well, they're wrong. I, I frankly find it a not an especially worthwhile venture to explore the rationalizations that people make for themselves in order to justify an action that they would have taken anyway. Uh, what Donald Trump is doing is profoundly politically stupid. Voters don't like what happened on January 6th. They've sent every possible signal they can send that politicians who do not assure them to a, to a degree that they need that it will never happen again are not going to earn their votes. But more than being politically stupid, it is grotesquely immoral what he's doing. He's The way is littered with the ruined lives of people who take him both seriously and literally when he exhorts them to, to engage in violence. Then they talk about it. The, the tearful apologies in court, the displays before the January 6th committee, um, people who actually take him very seriously when they think he's calling for violence and engage in violence, and their lives are ruined as a result. He doesn't seem to care at all for these people, and I don't know what else to call it other than immoral when you're engaged in the willful effort to mislead impressionable people. I know Republicans have stopped using that language in order to navigate the thicket of a movement headed by Trump. But that is the only language that's applicable here. Now, is that a politically smart argument to make in the Republican Party? You know, probably not. But that's a, a broader symptom of a profound sickness. If we cannot confront and engage with what is right in front of our eyes and call it what it is, then the problems that are expressed in electoral defeats are not going to be resolved. 
Those electoral defeats are a symptom of a sickness, not his cause. Donald Trump is his cause. So, no, let, let's stick with you for a moment. We have Chris Christie out there. He went up to New Hampshire, had an event up there where he previewed what would be his case. And he makes the argument, you know, I think rightly, that no one's tiptoeing around Donald Trump. You're going to have to keep, take the case directly to him. Um, and, then, and then he's obviously implicitly advancing himself as the guy who can do that. But he also wants to take shots at what he calls the Trump light candidates, and that's Ron DeSantis. And there's where you get the scenario where you can easily imagine, you know, DeSantis has won one Iowa, and you think he's going to uh, have momentum in New Hampshire. And then there's a debate stage, and there's Chris Christie taking down Ron DeSantis and, and doing a Marco not on Trump, but on the Florida governor. I mean, Phil has talked about this, right, where he, he identifies sort of a 2016 dynamic where everybody thinks they're the anti-Trump candidate and all they need to do is clear the field to get to, to this mythical head-to-head race and then Trump will fade and they'll be, uh, they'll be the heir apparent. And it never didn't work out in 2016. It's probably not going to work out now, but you can see him. He, he, he's retailing himself. Chris Christie's retailing himself as this bull in a china shop who's going to be the truth teller, who's really going to strip the bark off the place and tell you exactly how it is. And he's going to take it to the case against Trump to the, to the nation. But he's also going to take that case, as you say, against everybody else. And which one's going to be more resonant? I mean, it's going to be the case against everyone else. I think t- Donald Trump or uh, Ron DeSantis's real vulnerability is that, and it's not been tested yet, is that he is kind of aping Trump is that he's mimicking Trump to, in order to appeal to the voters who he perceives to be in his column. And Trump has noticed this and said, listen, if you want the real thing, I'm right here. Bold, bold colors, not pale pastels. That's, a, that's, I think, a real vulnerability. It's the sort of thing that Trump has this preternatural ability to identify sort of the, the thing that's in the back of your head about somebody, but you, you never really articulated it. And that's it. And if Christie can make that case, <laughs> too, then... Yeah, what else would be left of a of a DeSantis as you say? There's not a, there's an emotional appeal here. And Ron DeSantis is making the intellectual case for his candidacy that I've done this, I'm effective in this way, I will get done what needs to get done for you. But it doesn't really tickle the erogenous zones of the Republican voter in the same way that Trump does. And if you can can convince the voting public, the Republican primary electorate, that this guy's a fraud, that he's a phony, that nobody knows who he really is. And so how are you going to know who he is in office? I think that could really hurt him. So, Jim Garrity, do you buy Politico Playbook recording Tuesday morning had a a take this morning that I think is kind of conventional wisdom now, that this is just a repeat of 15 and 16. You have Trump pumping out his content on uh, uh, all over the place, on social media, on Fox. He did an hour-long interview with Sean Hannity last night, saying whatever he wants, driving the, the message, uh, shifting the, the debate onto his terms. And then you have Nikki Haley and Mike Pence, who obviously isn't in the race yet, kind of tiptoeing around Trump the way Rubio and Cruz did initially. And then you have Ron DeSantis as Jeb, potentially, Florida governor, who maybe seems stronger than he is. And then you have Chris Christie potentially playing the Chris Christie role. Well, first of all, Rich, I went back and I checked because I noticed something I'd written years ago about Chris Christie was getting some uh, retweets and discussion. It was back on April 21st, 2021, where I asked, is anyone besides Chris Christie yearning for a Christie 2024 bid? Well, here we are. It's March 2023, and Chris Christie is same doing, this, doing the same shtick. You know, let me tell you, Rich, you know, nobody's done the executive experience that I do. This guy, DeSantis, he's a, uh, he's, he's boring. He's a cold fish. He, Chris Christie will go through the weaknesses of every other potential Republican. And then it's almost at the end of the conversation, he expects people to say, well, gee, you're right, Governor. The only person who really can, you know, knock off Trump is you. You should run. And I notice no one's asking that. No, no one's saying, oh, you know, if only we had Chris Christie. Yeah. Chris Christie's been out of the game for a long time. Chris Christie's been sitting at that desk at ABC News this week for a while. Chris Christie had an opportunity. Probably 2012 was the best year for Chris Christie to run by 2016. And he played a key role in helping get Donald Trump the nomination in 2016. So the idea that all of these people who are frustrated with Trump are going to say, oh, thank goodness you're here, Chris Christie. Oh, wow. Oh, what would we do without you? No, no, we have better options this cycle. Uh, Now, again, it is March 
it's, you know, traditionally the start of the campaign season used to be the Ames straw poll, which would be in summer, right? Mm -hmm. We've got a while before it really, you know, push comes to shove. But I think if you are uh, a whole bunch of Republicans that I like, like Nikki Haley or Tim Scott or Chris Sununu uh, or, or Mike Pence for that matter, and you're still struggling to get out of, get out of single digits come November, December of this year, you probably should get out. It's entirely, look, there's an extremely high chance that the next president of the United, the person who takes the oath of office in January 2025 is going to be named either Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Donald Trump, or Ron DeSantis. I'd love other options. There are a whole bunch of better options in this country, but those are the four. And so if you're still hanging around and you're, you're just not getting anywhere, it's time for you to accept it. You know, Nikki Haley is going to the border this week. I'm sure she's going to have a perfectly good event. I also don't know that Nikki Haley is going to turn anybody's head by what she's going to say at the border. She's going to say Biden is doing a terrible job of enforcing the uh, border security. I agree. I think every other Republican is going to say it. None of these candidates are that striking and different and, and you know, thought-provoking. And no, none of them are as charismatic as they think they are, other than maybe Tim Scott. I really like Tim Scott. I'd like to see him get a fair hearing. But, uh, you know, if, if you jump in and you do some events and you do that first debate and nobody nobody reacts to you, then it's time to exit stage right. And I, I, I'm, unfortunately, I don't, I don't have a lot of faith that that's going to happen and it could result in another 2016-style outcome. I kind of miss the Iowa straw poll, by the way. A ridiculous event, but did have a useful winnowing effect. I was just talking to a friend before we started to record about how poor Tim Plenty, you know, great guy, great governor of Minnesota, just candidacy totally immolated in the uh, Iowa straw poll. I was going to say, if nothing else, it was a, all right, who's got their you-know-what together in Iowa? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So the uh, insiders seem to think Yunkin's not running, kind of very little sign that, that he's running, that Pompeo probably is, is not going to run. But uh, the, the lights are flashing green in terms of, of Tim Scott getting in. So, Charlie, let's go exit question first to you. Percentage odds that Donald Trump is the Republican nominee, Ron DeSantis is the Republican nominee, or someone from the field is the Republican nominee? I think it's 50-50. Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump, and there's no chance anyone else will be. Wow. And you were despairing this weekend? And, and you're, you're back at 50-50? That's pretty... Or is 50-50 despairing compared to where you used to be? Well, think about where we should be. Donald Trump <laughs> lost the 2020 election. He then tried to stage a coup... He then interfered in the 2022 election with disastrous consequences, and he's currently debating out loud whether he's going to be arrested for having paid hush money to a porn star with whom he cheated on his wife who was at home with their child. And there's a 50% chance he's going to win the nomination. <laughs> uh, you're right. You're, uh, you, you blew up my... Uh assumptions there 50 seems just seems you know kind of kind of low <laughs> but in the scheme of maybe things maybe i'm I, wrong i mean maybe i take your point maybe you are right though in the sense that it's it's uh, better than it was no, on I, i'm gonna end up uh, i don't, don't want to preview my answer but i'm gonna end up in a very similar spot though, where, where you are jim garrity percentage odds trump desantis the field I guess I'll go something like 47, 47, 6 percent. Um, I do think it's conceivable, though not likely, that what comes from Trump and DeSantis turns so phenomenally ugly and mudslinging and they tear each other drown, each other down, that a sufficient, you know, a plurality of Republicans say, ugh, enough of this, and they go to a, a Tim Scott or some third option. Mm -hmm. Noah? 60, 40, 0. 60% uh, Trump, just judging from today's vantage point, because the nightmare scenario is we got some polling out of Iowa and New Hampshire shows DeSantis is pretty competitive there. But if you have Tim Scott get in and Nikki Haley are in, you head to South Carolina, everybody chops up the vote. Trump emerges victorious in South Carolina, heads over to Nevada, wins Nevada. Then you get so into the rest so of Nevada the is, state. So Nevada is not before North, South Carolina? That's, I don't recall. We don't know what the early state schedule is yet. But bottom line is, Nevada seems like it's pretty Trumpy territory, and South Carolina is a more establishmentarian state, but if you're chopping up the vote there, it's pretty easy to see how Trump wins a plurality, and then invalidates the verdicts in Iowa and New Hampshire, and then he heads into the March, or late February, the presumptive nominee. Yeah, so I'm, uh, I guess, in between where, where all you guys are, I think it's too optimistic for Jim and Charlie to be coin flip. Uh, I think 
Trump is the odds-on favorite, and I give some percentage to the field just out of modesty, and you never know what, you know, sometimes crazy stuff happens. So these numbers aren't exactly uh, right, but something like 50 Trump, 40 DeSantis, 10 the field. With that, let me do a quick plug for NR Plus digital subscription service at nationalreview.com. Your way to get around our increasingly extensive metered paywall. Your way, if you sign up and log in, to see 90% fewer ads, especially fewer of the obnoxious ads that really annoy you when you're trying to read our material. A way to dig deeper into our community. You can comment on articles and blog posts and get invited to exclusive events with our writers, editors, and other conservative figures. So a great deal all around. And most importantly, a really crucial way to support our valuable journalism. So if you're not already a member of NR+, please consider joining tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR+. Today, tomorrow, or the day after. Not going to be persnickety about exactly when you do it, but it'd be great if you did. So, Charlie, yet another terrible shooting. This this one in Nashville, a private school. All all these events are heartrending. You can imagine. You know, th- this is this is a, a place where parents just assume n- no one would ever think of doing uh, anything. Uh, there, but we have, according to the initial reports and uh, some of the initial reporting, as it usually is, is kind of fuzzy. Uh, a former student uh, who uh, identifies as trans, a, a woman who has identified as a man at times, 28 years old. We've seen the the uh, video of um, this this woman driving up in a Honda Fit, I think it, it is, you know, and just a demon showing up in a car like that is, uh, um, you know, a, a extraordinary, very ordinary car um, and someone on a um, hell-bent um, mission of evil blasts through the uh, doors um, and uh, w- walks in and then starts stalking the halls. This has, of course, prompted... Uh, calls uh, for an assault weapons ban, including from the President of the United States. What do you make of it? What do I make of it? The assault weapons ban call is, of course, a non sequitur because no one else in the building was armed. doesn't matter what type of weapon you have in that situation. The advantage is all yours and was until the police showed up and did what should have been done in Uvalde. Really, those two police officers ought to be celebrated nationally. Yeah, what took the, the call was at, I think, at 10.13, and they they went up and and took her down like 10, 10.37 or something like that, 14 minutes. I, as usual... I'm loath to draw broad conclusions about the identity and motives of the shooter or to engage in any sort of analysis that might be used to shut down debate. What I am profoundly concerned by in this case are the rationalizations and semi-rationalizations of this attack that are being made by people who are not mentally ill and who would not themselves engage in behavior even approaching this in the last 24 hours i have seen it noted on television or in major newspapers that tennessee has just passed laws regulating childhood surgeries that was terry moran who said that I've seen it noted that the Daily Wire, home to Matt Walsh, who's been critical of the trans movement, is located in Nashville, Tennessee. And I've seen it noted that the shooter ostensibly had a grudge against the school she attacked because it taught different moral values than the ones she likes. And I want to hear the people who have raised these facts make the therefore part of the argument. I want Terry Moran 
and the New York Times and the Washington Post and anyone on Twitter who is contrasting this event with the legislation or speech that has come out of Tennessee that they dislike to add in the and as a result part explicitly. What is it? Is it, and therefore it's understandable that this woman shot a nine-year-old? Is it, and therefore, as we all understand, this was inevitable? That it was comprehensible? That she had the right idea but the wrong targets? That it was less bad than it would have been if she'd done it for no obvious reason? What is it? This has been the primary response in the media. Oh, well, you do know what just happened in Tennessee. Finish the sentence. I want to know, is political violence acceptable? Is murdering children acceptable? And where is the limiting principle? If a pro-life activist had shot up a school in the state of New York, would the Times have noted on Twitter that New York had just expanded abortion subsidies? I think not. I think not. So why here? If a Christian shot up a bakery in Colorado, would Terry Moran point out front and center that Jack Phillips has been persecuted by that state for a decade? He would not. This has gone above and beyond the usual narrative building in my estimation. And this whole issue has made progressives crazy. It plays such a, an outsized an enormously outsized role in our politics. It's hard to fathom. It's all we seem to talk about now. The moment the issue is transgender people or drag queens or pronouns, people lose their mind. And everything that flows from it is drawn into this, this manic, obsessive... <sighs> However crazy it is, it gets sucked into this Manichaean framework that historically was reserved for a handful of core issues like murder or war or genocide or rape. To the point at which fairly common sense legislation protecting children from irreversible surgeries that seems sensible to most people, that for all of human history would have been obvious, is described in these stories as anti-trans, not only as if that's the most obvious thing in the world, but as if it obviously had something to do with this and might have even justified it in some way. Yeah, so Jim, it's as if... Um, imperfect analogy here, but just to illustrate the broad point, a, a white nationalist um, sh shoots something up in, in New York City, and the mainstream media says, oh, yeah, well, well New York City is, is an area with high levels of immigration. So, uh, of course, this would happen here. Yeah. No, I, I, um, it's interesting because every time we have some awful mass shooting like this, the details in the immediate aftermath are sketchy, contradictory, a lot of rumors, a lot of stuff. You'd be surprised how often there's a mass shooting and you'll hear some sort of report of possible second shooter. You know, no one's given the all clear here. It almost never is a second shooter, but because of the confusion, the, the you know, uh, the, the, the chaos surrounding, people hear gunshots echoing and they fear that there's a second shooter somewhere on the scene. Uh, we tell people not to jump to conclusions. We tell people not to... Uh, speculate, not to try to shoehorn what is known into this pre-existing narrative. And it doesn't do a darn bit of good that, that every single time people decide, aha, this mass shooting is further evidence that my political worldview is correct and that the people who disagree with me are horrible people and the people who disagree with me are rooting for mass shootings and the people who agree with me are good people and the obvious answer is X. Now, very often the X in that sentence is ban all guns. Uh, but you can find other, you know, simplistic policy solutions that are offered for this. Look, I, I don't think there's going to be any dispute that the shooter in this case had serious mental health problems. Almost every mass shooter qualifies as having serious mental health. People who are mentally healthy do not say, you know what? I think I'm going to shoot up a school today. And we've had this major, I, I don't think... It is based on this, it's interesting, you hear folks who are pro-gun control say, well, if we really wanted to solve this problem, we would be doing something. Do something, right? That that rallying cry. Well, we've been arguing 
for greater treatment of the mental health, including in some cases the involuntary um, placing people in institutions because they are threats to themselves and they are threats to others for a really long time. And change in this issue is moving at a glacial pace if it's moving at all, right? It's getting worse and worse. You see uh, people with mental issues, homeless people pushing people onto the subway tracks in New York City. People are still hesitant to do so. That's one of the reasons people feel so unsafe in the city streets these days. Um, people don't want to deal with this. People don't want to think about what would be required to take everyone who is mentally troubled off the streets. And in the case of this, all the number, you know, every time there's a mass shooting, the subsequent, the day three or the day four story are the sheer number of people, neighbors, friends, family members, coworkers, all of whom will report various red flags. And in some cases, they'll say they went to university uh, authorities. They went to their, their employers. Well, you know, university presidents can't take away somebody's guns. Employers can't take away somebody's guns. The only people who have the authority to take away somebody's guns are the cops and the judges who have to sign off on that. Red flag laws. So until you're doing that, it's not going to do anybody any good. And yet somehow we've been through all of these mass shootings and people still seem to think, oh, well, if I, if I go to co- talk to comp- my company's HR, they'll be able to stop this guy from you know committing a mass shooting. No. It's very important to talk about this carefully and honestly, but with uh, sufficient sobriety and respect for the contours of the debate. And I do resent that it's only us who are obliged to behave responsibly. Everybody else gets to discount their fits of peak as a reasonable emotional response to external conditions. We don't. But nevertheless, um, I do think it's relevant that this individual experience gender dysphoria because that is a feature of psychological distress, possibly even mental dysfunction. Now that doesn't even, that doesn't mean everybody who suffers from this condition is mentally defunct. It doesn't mean everybody who suffers from this condition is not necessarily uh, engaged in, uh, in, in a, a medical process that would be diagnosed as appropriate. But even the Mayo Clinic and others down, uh, provide resources to access mental health services and mental health uh, facilities for people who are suffering gender dysphoria. It is a psychological issue. Now, not every, there are a lot of alcoholics that are perfectly functional. There are a lot of people who are transgender who are perfectly functional, who do integrate into society and don't experience any of these sort of issues, but not all of them. They don't shoot up children. It's quite clear that there is a profound level of psychological distress associated with this condition, which is why assuming that it could be treated with something, quote, called gender-affirming care isn't necessarily care at all, especially if it just papers over the symptoms of a broader psychological malady of which gender dysphoria might be only a part. A clinical assessment needs to confirm or or contribute to that assumption, but absent a clinical assessment, we can't make any any sort of assumptions along those lines, and I'm hesitant to do so. Nevertheless, the people who are noting that this was a feature of this individual's psychological profile, who also went and killed a bunch of kids, are not wrong to identify that. And they're not perpetuating prejudice. They're identifying a blind spot that society has decided is something we're all going to tolerate, even at the expense of these individuals' well-being, the people who suffer from this, and the people around them who suffer, apparently, from this. There's a profound imbalance here that needs to be addressed. So, Charlie, your guess, uh, next question to you, say in the next five years, this this horrible trend of mass shootings, school shootings will one way or the other have burned out, yes or no? I don't know. I find it the most difficult topic because it is so difficult to stop and it's also so rare and it's also so harrowing when it happens. You know, I was thinking about this this morning. Of course, I'm a parent. I drop my kids off at school and it scares you. And it's pretty irrational that it scares you relative to other things like your kids taking the bus, which is not to say we shouldn't talk about it, but it is to put it in its correct context and also its correct context statistically when you're trying to work out how to stop it. I don't know if this is true, Rich. Maybe you'll remember, but I would propose that the number of times on this podcast that we've talked about mass shootings compared to fentanyl deaths is probably at a ratio of 10 to 1. 
in favor of oh, mass yeah. shootings. No, that's true. Now, yeah. I am much more moved by, sickened by, scared by mass shootings than I am fentanyl deaths. I think about mass shootings more. I worry about mass shootings more. I shouldn't, statistically. The randomized nature of this problem in a country this big and this free with this many guns makes it so hard to even start to think about that it's impossible to answer this exit question. And if you look at how police forces deal with crime in particularized areas, and then you compare it with how we would deal with this, it's black and white. It's north and south. If you know that there are two or three parts of town that are dangerous and they're where all the muggings are and they're where all the shootings are and they're where the gang activity is, you can actually formulate a plan. You can increase surveillance. You can increase the number of cops. You can introduce shots, stoppers. And this, you, how, how, how? And the an answer is not get get rid of the guns like Britain did. There's 500 million of them. I I just I don't know. It is a cultural trend. There is a part of this that is self fulfilling, that is cyclical, that is, um, that is the product of of a copycat um, mentality. This person who carried this one out. What was the penultimate thing that she texted to her friend? It was, you'll probably see me on the news when I'm dead. And sure as hell we did. And I don't know what we could do about that. Again, it's a free country. You don't want to start shutting down the news. But someone's watched this on the news, and they will text something like that too in six months. I don't know. I, I just don't know. Tim Garrity. Uh, extremely unlikely that in five years, I, I certainly hope things get better, but I don't expect it to. And I think part of it is this almost mimetic idea that when you reach some threshold of frustration with your life, that what you do is you go and you shoot up a bunch of people. I really kind of feel like what happened to Columbine in, I think it was 1998, 1999? 99, I think. Was something demonic, was something that uh, created, unleashed a great evil into the world. And yes, you can point to mass shootings that go back to the the clock tower at University of Texas back in, you know, a long while back. But I really, look, lots of teenagers have very hard time going through school. Lots of teenagers have times where they feel like a lonely outsider. Lots of teenagers have problems with bullying. Lots, you know, all of this stuff is, is... stuff that almost everybody goes through to some degree. The idea that some people have taken those, admittedly, very difficult experiences and decided the only way to deal with that pain is by mass murder. Like, you know, you'd really love to, oh, by the way, an enormous number of school shooters have like developed obsessions about the Columbine shooters in the months before they go out and commit their acts. Like there's a giant glaring warning sign right there. And if your teenagers, you know, developing a sudden interest in Columbine shooters, intervene immediately. Do not wait. Do not hesitate. So, look, the signs are all there, but for some reason, we keep finding people who are like, yeah, and I saw some signs. I was worried about them, but I didn't feel any need to lock up my gun cabinet. No. Yeah, Jim, I totally agree with Jim that because these things are self-perpetuating to a certain degree, that you find that the school shooter was inspired by Sandy Hook and, and Columbine and what have you, that it's unlikely that we're going to see less of this uh, because we, we, we all play along. And I don't know how we could not, how could you not dwell and fixate on an act of violence targeting children, just something as, as senseless as this. Um, so everybody contributes to the same phenomenon that is perpetuating these acts of violence. And I don't know how to turn that cycle off. It would, it would mean turning human nature off. Yeah, I agree. It's it's un- unlikely to have burned out in in five years. With that, let's go to uh, another depressing news item. Jim Garrity, Wall Street Journal poll. They asked uh, whether people are uh, um, v- very very patriotic. Um, uh, you know, very interested in having kids. Uh, marriage important to them. Religion important to them. And saw steep de- declines from when they asked this 25 years ago on 
all these things. Now, some people point out, you look at the the very patriotic and the somewhat patriotic answers and add it up, and I don't know, you're in you're in the 70s uh, somewhere, or maybe even the in the 90s. You get get much higher when you add in the the uh, the somewhats. And uh, John McCormick pointed out that you look at a Gallup poll that doesn't have some methodological issues that some people have taken issue with the, with the Wall Street Journal, you get better readings. Still, I would say not the, the greatest readings. The, the Gallup poll shows a decline in, in patriotism since 2001. So how alarmed are you by the findings in this journal poll? Well, uh, no offense to Charlie and Noah, but I kind of wish MBD were here because MBD uh, saw this yesterday and saw this as you know gi- a giant flashing neon sign that everything that uh, Michael had been worried about over the last few years is coming to pass. And I disagree slightly, somewhat, with Michael in mm-hmm. this. And I, I posted about this in the corner. Um, the One of the reasons this spread so virally and people kind of sat up and took notice was it was measuring uh, – first of all, I, I should step back. Uh, you should read Patrick Ruffini's analysis of this. He points out that the – most current numbers are from an online survey, uh, and then the other previous ones were by a phone survey. And he believes that methodology matters and that people are more likely to uh, want to give what the answers they the answers that will be approved of when they're talking to a live person. In other words, Patrick suggests that basically they're a little bit higher. The, the, the previous numbers were a little inflated by mm-hmm. people wanting to give, quote unquote, the right yeah, answers. Imp- impress the survey yeah, uh, takers yeah. with their, their great patriotism. Yeah. Uh, or the idea that it would be kind of taboo to say, yeah, patriotism right, isn't that course. important to me, religion, yeah. you know, all kind of stuff. And that when it's online, and maybe it's not as uh, big a deal. The other point, which I I don't know, I think you can, that's not the only factor, but it's something to keep in mind when looking at these numbers. Um, the graph that went around measured those who are very important to them. And as I mentioned earlier, it wasn't just in the 70s. I mean, you, you can get to uh, 90% say hard work is still important or somewhat, very important or somewhat important. Uh, tolerance for others is still at or above 90%. Uh, community involvement, it's at or above 80% when you use this measurement. Uh, patriotism, 73%. Marriage, 70 Having children, 65%. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, that's not great news. I'd like to see those numbers as high as you can get them. But I don't think someone uh, saying, used to, you said three years ago, oh, it's very important. And now they say it's somewhat important. I don't think it's quite as steep as that chart makes it appear. And it's not necessarily a fire alarm fire. It is it is a cause for concern. But the other point, which I raise, and I kind of surprised isn't getting more of a, a little more discussion. Look, the country is in a worse spot now than it was three years ago, pre-pandemic. Um, and I don't think I, I you know I love my country. I hope everyone listening to this podcast feels the same way. But just because you love your country doesn't mean you can't be disappointed in it. Doesn't mean you can't be irked with it. Doesn't mean you can't be even you know angry both with your government and with your fellow Americans. I won't rattle off everything that's happened since the pandemic darkened our lives and brought the world to a screeching halt about three years ago this you know this month. But I think this is a big factor in that. And I think that people may feel a little less robust love for their country when they feel like their countrymen have been making bad decisions over and over again. Um, and then just finally, the last note is the, the rating on money went up from 31% to 41% to 43%. Well, when you go through all the economic dislocation of the pandemic and the supply chain issues, and then uh, you know all of the runaway inflation, and then you have really high gas prices, an average more than five bucks a gallon, and grocery bills are so much higher, and then you watch some, some banks collapse, I'm not going to begrudge anybody for being a little more worried about money than they were three years ago. I, I think that's an entirely rational response to events. So I don't think this means that Americans have gotten greedy and selfish and, and all that kind of stuff. These numbers are concerning, but I don't think it is the quite the explicit we're all going to hell in a handbasket that some mm-hmm. people wanted to say it was. Yeah, so no, I think those, those are all uh, fine and worthy caveats from Jim. And maybe it's not a five alarm fire, but it's it's somewhere in there, you know, like three, four, three and a half alarm. I mean, the slide from very to somewhat is is still a slide. And if you look at the numbers for young people, both in the Wall Street Journal poll and in the Gallup poll, which again <clears throat> doesn't have this methodological uh, issue that Pat Ruffini has has pointed out, it's just young people are less patriotic. And maybe they age into patriotism, but I kind of doubt it. I think it'll, they'll be at a, at a lower level uh, throughout their lifetimes. And the, the, the next generation, you wouldn't be uh, hugely optimistic about them being more patriotic. Well, I don't know. 
I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the decline of uh, patriotism among the next generation has been a perennial uh, source of frustration since the end of the Second World War. And each generation perceives the generation coming up behind, uh, in front of them to be just a, a little less grateful for the circumstances they inherited. Just not not as grateful as they should be. Certainly not as grateful as they are. I, I, I put in all the caveats that Jim mentioned, Patrick's piece, John's piece. I would have put in a good word for my former colleague, uh, Commentary Magazine, Abe Greenwald, to whom Michael was responding in his piece, uh, who all identified you know the problems with this. But uh, there's a, a, a Wall Street Journal uh, NORC poll that came out about a week earlier that didn't get enough attention that explains a lot of this in my view, which is the perception among Americans that they are in their, their conditions, their financial conditions primarily, but generally conditions are worse than they expected. The keyword being expected, there's a sense of betrayal mm-hmm. being expressed by people who are in circumstances that they didn't see coming, that they were promised something different and it didn't materialize for them. And as a result, they feel profoundly less confident in the future, and they don't think the future is going to be as good for their children as it is for them. Now, if you really believed that, yeah, you'd be bitter as heck. You'd be really annoyed at the people in in charge and even at the circumstances uh, of the country that uh, you were born into. Is that a static condition, a permanent condition? Is that going to color how they see uh, politics for the rest of their lives? I don't know. I, I think that's that changes with their financial circumstances or other various circumstances. I don't necessarily think it's completely static, especially since we're witnessing so much dynamism in this movement in the numbers already that the dynamism can can work both ways. Yeah, there's there's definitely a circumstantial element here as well that contributes just to a, a sour feeling generally, but you know, that wouldn't account for uh, not valuing marriage as much or uh, not not being as religious, et cetera, et cetera. Charlie, where where are you on this? I think a lot of the objections that Patrick Ruffini raises make sense. Intuitively, a person is more likely to tell a computer that they care about money than a person. And they're more likely to tell a computer they're somewhat patriotic than a person. Which doesn't necessarily yield good news, because it would suggest, if correct, that people were less very patriotic in 1998 than we perhaps thought. But I would like to see a consistent survey, not one that shifted methodology halfway through. I don't have a huge amount to add, except that I would encourage conservatives to take the moat out of their own eye on the patriotism question. It's tempting to regard people who are less patriotic as being intrinsically left of center. And historically, there's been something to that. And still, there is something to that. If you look at polling on patriotism, conservatives are more likely to say they're very patriotic. They're more likely to say America is the best country in the world, that it's exceptional, that they would rather live here than anyone else, anywhere else, and so on. But there is on the right now an unpatriotic vibe There is on the right, and I see it often, a claim that America is gone, it's been lost, it's destroyed, that nothing that was worth conserving has been conserved, that the election of, insert election here, showed that it has disappeared forever. There's a lot more of that than there used to be. This poll plays into it. And... Well, it plays into it, but it also perhaps reflects it. If if we're looking for one of the drivers of a shift in patriotism, then we, and I don't include myself in this because I'm a rah-rah America sort of guy, but we ought to look at ourselves. We ought to look at how our politicians on the right and our writers and our talk radio hosts discuss America these days, not often as a shining city on a hill, but as a disaster area. So, you know, it's been odd in some ways watching people freak out about this in my social media feeds and in the journalistic outlets that I read, and then go back to saying, (laughs) 
what a terrible country this is and no one can get on and the economy is bad and Joe Biden has destroyed it and we need to go back to the 50s because that was the only time it was ever good. Well, maybe you're one of those people. Next question to you, Jim Garrity. There will be a resurgence of patriotism in this country at some point without a, a crisis driving it. Just a, at some point, there'll just be a patriotic revival. Yes or no? Yes, because you didn't put any particular time limit on it. <laughs> I don't know if it'll take two, three years. I don't know if it'll take, you know, 10 years. Um, I, I, you know, look, it, it's very interesting to hear people saying, oh, you know, this youngest generation, they're the worst. They have no patriotism. They have no values. They're attached to their phones. You know, there's this crankiness attitude. And to be a parent and to have be blessed with uh, two kids who I think are terrific and see their friends who are terrific and bright and driven and creative. And so I don't have this feeling of gloom and doom around uh, the entire coming generation. I feel great about the kids that I know personally. And I suspect that once you get to know kids per- terrific, they, they are, you know, great. Maybe you do want to yell at them to get off their phones every now and then. Uh, you know, you know George W. Bush used to say, leave no child behind. Mm-hmm. Well, we can leave a few behind. Oh, but there's some <laughs> losers in there. But by and large, kids, kids are okay. And I think all they just need is a little bit of love, a little bit of encouragement, and steer them in the right direction. Noah? Uh, I'm hesitant to say yes to the circumstances that you put it as because the crisis is probably the primary driver Sorry, without, without without a crisis <laughs> right with, with, I mean, with without a crisis I there'll mean, be a revival just at just th- through circumstances that isn't a major war or terror attack or anything like that i mean probably not in the way i want to see it because if my assessment here is correct that a lot of this is driven by material concerns then it's the most shallow expression of patriotism you can imagine it's it's not a it's if it's just well I'm not doing so great so I don't I'm down on this country then you weren't really up on the country to begin with so yes there's a, a profound misunderstanding a misapprehension of what unconditional patriotism is and why you should have it Charlie yes and I think it's more likely to come outside of a crisis than as the result of one crises whether Noah is correct that this is a bad thing or not, do often the opposite, which is to make people angry with each other and with the world and with America within that world. I think if things settle down and the divisions in our politics, which are entirely legitimate, but which won't always be there in the same form that they are now, start to lose their rough edges and we see some economic growth and people are happier culturally then yeah we'll see some some return to patriotism and i take noah's point that that is in some sense shallow i also think it's inevitable as human beings we do judge our country and our governments in concrete ways and it's not particularly surprising that we would see a reduction, if indeed that reduction exists, after the COVID-19 crisis and then Donald Trump trying to steal the election and now a great deal of overreach from the left that I think does bother normal people. That, that's, that's going to tamp it down a bit. I'm a no. I think it'll continue to slide the wrong way. Love of country is not what it was and as important as it was, and it will take a, a crisis to revive it in any sort of fundamental way. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. Noah, you've been moving enormous stones out of your driveway. <laughs> I got uh, So I have this piece of fallow land that's on this big hillside right in front of my house, and it's right outside my office window. It's an eyesore. I hate it. So I'm trying to terrace it, and yeah, I got these. My dad dug out a bunch of stones out of his property and had some people drop them off, so now I've got a lug. Uh, like maybe 250 pounds a piece, 100 pounds a piece stones up this hill and layer them and try to create this terrace uh, work. So it's, it's, it's coming together, but it's, um, 
It's actually, I guess it's the only exercise I get, so I might as well be happy about it. Now, everything that you just said could have been said by a British aristocrat in 1810. <laughs> oh, I have this fallow land on the north side of the estate, so my father has excavated the rock from his property and sent it over to me. Except for they wouldn't, they wouldn't be hauling them themselves, though. No, that's Fair right. Yeah, so, proletarian of me. Jim Garrity, you've been focused on Trivial Pursuit cards. Well, okay, so... Uh, a rebuilding weekend at the Garrity household. My younger son is uh, playing flag football again. Uh, for the past, I've joked that you know, uh, you know, these kids, some of the kids on the other team were so big they drove themselves to the game. Well, he's now in the thirteen to sixteen uh, category. So some of these kids actually did probably drive themselves to the game. Uh, they got their butts handed to them. Tough loss. And so Sunday night we go out to a restaurant at a British pub style place. And they have a little thing of the old Trivial Pursuit game cards in a little holder by the table. And we just had the best one – of the, one of the card sets was from the 1980s. So my wife and I are just, you know, nailing it left and right. You know, this is completely in our wheelhouse of useless uh, information that we know. Um, but also a bunch of the geography stuff my, my kids are – and we just had – it was just exactly what we needed. It was the perfect conversation starter or kind of way of getting things going. And I just think every restaurant should just have Trivial Pursuit cards on the table to get things – people asking questions to each other and laughing. And you know, it's most fun when you feel like you knew it and you totally were convinced and you're just a little mm-hmm. bit off or something. There you go. Charlie? I've been playing pinball soccer. My parents gave my now seven-year-old – this for Christmas, not Christmas, his birthday. And not only is it a fun little game of pinball soccer where you have the goals at each end and then you have two flippers each and you have to move the ball around, try and get it in the goal, but you had to build it from scratch. Is this, the, it, so this isn't foosball, this is something different? It's something very different. And the half of the fun was that it came in about you know 1,000 pieces and with the help of wax and rubber bands and little screw-in devices, then you had to build it from scratch. I mean, I, I'd Sounds say terrible. it was... No, it was great. It was great. Although I probably did three quarters of it. One, one, one quarter in, and, uh, and they started sitting back a bit and letting me do it, which suits me because I like building things. So I made, uh, quite proud of myself, an Edmonton Oilers Easter egg. You know, why just dip these these eggs and die when you can do something genuinely artistic? I'm not an Edmonton Oilers fan, but I think they have one of the best logos in sports. So I used a orange and um, orange and blue pens to make, a, I think, a pretty good facsimile of an Edmonton Oilers logo on this egg. Uh, I would do some things differently if I had it to do over. One, making sure the egg is totally dry is uh, really important to the process. And I would have sketched it out, the logo, a little bit the pencil with the pencil to get the proportions exactly right before going at it um, with ink. But but maybe next Easter I'll do all 32 teams, assuming that the, the inflation is gone and the price of eggs is is uh, down to a rational place again. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick? So having disagreed with Michael a bit uh, about the interpretation of those polling results, I'm going to praise his uh, corner post. Because Michael is just kind of like the walking definition of somebody I don't always agree with. But when he writes it, he always makes me think. He always makes me uh, reconsider my prior assumptions about an issue. And uh, I just kind of point out that like he, he really nails that sweet spot of disagreeing without being disagreeable most of the time. No, what's your pick? Yours, Rich. Uh, yes, we are making trans kids. It is undeniable uh, the degree to which this <clears throat> social contagion is fueling this phenomenon. And it's not great for everybody. And as you say, in you know, five years' time, ten years' time, we're going to look back on this and wonder, what did we do psychologically to a lot of young women who were experiencing really conventional uh, frustrations with their body and telling them something that ended up changing the course of their lives, not necessarily for the better? Thank you. Charlie Cook, what's your pick? My pick is Jim's Morning Jolt. It seems I do that a lot, but I love Jim's Morning Jolt. You know who else loves Jim's Morning Jolt? Mike Rowe, whose podcast I did recently, told me on the air that he loves Jim's Morning Jolt. Well, I too love Jim's Morning Jolt, and I like today's Morning Jolt, why the legal case against Fox News might fail. The great thing uh, about this uh, is that it's, it's sort of deflating for both of the sorts of people who are obsessed with this case 
because it really does break through all of the palaver from those who think that there's going to be a federal raid on Fox and all of the people who work there are going to be pulled out into the street for misinformation. Uh, but it also uh, pushes back against the idea that the whole thing is a witch hunt and that Fox did nothing wrong at all and that the claims that were made and echoed uh, are true. So this, this is a, a nice little uh, slice of reality of the sort that, at least with this case, you don't find in many places of the internet. All right, so I've gotten double trumped here because I was going to pick the MBD corner post. Jim Garrity picked it, and then my fallback was was Jim's post on Fox because there just hasn't been enough focus that there is a free speech defense here. I would say it's not a, a slam dunk, but there, there's certainly a, a very plausible free speech case there, and Charlie's taken that. So I guess I'll go with John McCormick's rejoinder to the MBD post on the Wall Street Journal poll pointing to this Gallup poll that I was discussing a while ago. And this is why having some discussion and intramural debate on a topic is good because you get uh, all, all aspects of an issue brought out. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National View podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of National View magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thanks to Charlie. Thanks to Noah. Thanks to Jim. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.